Hello, I am James Wilcock and welcome to MonsterCast 19, produced for the ConsoleMonster.com website with guests Marty Greenwell. Hello. Reese Winder. Hello. And Stephen Bork. Hello. In this edition, our special guest who has been kind enough to rejoin us after appearing on a previous MonsterCast is Stevens. Hi there. Thanks for joining us, Steve. My pleasure. So, Stevens is an award-nominated writer and game designer, best known for his work on Revolution Software titles such as Broken Sword and others, and is currently working on a freelance basis. Which brings us nicely to our first topic, with the sad news that Disney has closed publisher LucasArts. So, Marty, when we talk about LucasArts, it's not just the more recent titles of Star Wars, there were also point-and-click adventures back in the day. What sort of games did those cover? LucasArts, um, as you might imagine, been a uh, a company born from Steve, uh, from George Lucas, did a lot of Star Wars games. Um, so we're talking things like uh, X, X-Fighter, X-Wing Fighter, TIE Fighter, all these space sim games that were really fantastic on on the PC in their day. And there's never been a game like them since. Uh, and that makes it a real shame that this company's now shut down because we're not going to see these things again. And what other point-and-click adventures were there? Because it was Day of the Tentacle, Sam and Max Hit the Road, Full Throttle, and of course, Monkey Island. Oh, and these were all classic, funny games with with a, a, a sense of humour that is, isn't, is, can't be beaten. And I think that's what made them great, is uh, this whole humour to these games. And, and they must you, have been good because a lot have been remastered, like the Monkey Island 2 games. Yeah, and if you have Scum VM, you can actually... Uh, and... The, you have to have the original games, obviously, otherwise you would be illegally playing them. But um, ScumVM is an emulator that will allow you to play these point-and-click adventures again. So a lot of people, particularly from those in the past who have played all these fantastic games, are very sad to see the closure. But realistically, what did LucasArts bring to modern gaming? What have they done recently? Not an, an awful lot, to be perfectly honest. They've got a lot of cancelled projects, and uh, they were working on a new Star Wars game, thirteen thirteen, that revolved around Boba Fett. Um, but recent releases, not an awful lot, not enough to justify the sort of money that uh, Disney paid for them. So this is the reason Disney gave. After evaluating our position in the game's market, we've decided to shift LucasArts from an internal development to a licensing model, minimising the company's risk while achieving a broader portfolio of quality Star Wars games. So in English, what does that mean? Did they actually... I mean, they did an awful lot of licensing anyway, didn't they? I mean, you look at, you know, sort of the um, Knights of the Old Republic games, I mean, they were all licensed out. I mean, they weren't done internally, were they? So what does it mean, Steve? What is a shift... From internal development to a licensing model, it just basically means they're not creating the actual games, they're just allowing mm. other companies to use the IP or the, the, the branding. I mean, does it actually have a big impact on what they're doing? Obviously, if they've cancelled the likes of this, this was it 1013 or something? It's 13, 13, 13. 13. And um, 
but you know, sort of like if they're still licensing the the IP, then potentially things will change as long as they're keeping a strong eye on um, the output. Then hopefully we'll still see games being made, you know, yeah. that will add to the the what we already know. You'd like to think so, but uh, if if um, rumours are to be believed, and uh, the projects that they've been working on have, have been cancelled, which seems a bit of a waste if they're this far into their uh, product uh, development life uh, life point. Would they have cancelled them if they were any good? <laughs> yeah, well, there's, there's that as well. I mean, Lucas Film was bought for four billion pounds from Disney. How can you expect to to make that much profit back? That's a lot of money Star to pay. Wars. But they've, they've wasted the license, though, haven't they? Yeah. Well, Disney seems to be doing the right thing already. It obviously was the right decision to close LucasArts because they've not been doing anything worthwhile for quite a while now. Um, and obviously, it's sad that we've lost the, the classic studio and for everyone that's lost a job. But from a gamer's perspective, it's, it should only be seen as a good thing because now we can hopefully get more Knights of the Old Republic but how 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 much effort have they uh, allowed LucasArts to do? Because they only bought the company back in October uh, twenty twelve. Oh, yeah. It, seems, it seems like they knew straight away what what they were going to do with these different studios. Mm. I'm just hoping that now they can uh, bring back some of those adventure games they've just been letting get gathered us for such a long time. Hopefully, give Monkey Island to uh, the, the creators themselves. Maybe even Double Fine. Well, a LucasArts representative has said about Star Wars 1313 that they're evaluating everything. There's always a possibility that it can still come out via licensing. So that's basically been killed off unless somebody else takes it on. Well, we didn't really see that much at the last E3 when they showed it, but what we did see looked very good. So it's it's a bit of a shame that that is a cancelled project. And of course, there's layoffs as well, which is never good news. They're all no, looking for no. workers. It's a shame. There's too many stories these days with companies in the gaming development sphere that are sinking, aren't rescued, and uh, lots of uh, people looking for work in that. Well, it, that it sense. Is, and what is it there? It's a shame. It's a shame because these companies are getting bought up by big publishers, and, and seemingly then just you know closed down or. Or, you know, it's it's not good that publishers are buying all these companies up and then doing nothing with them or nothing good with them. Rare, for example. Yeah, well, yeah, rare. What what have Rare done in recent times that they could be really proud of apart from Avatar clothing? God rest Rare. Oh, sad days. So is it better to be freelance, do you think, Steve, and not have all this stress? Um... I That's think in lots of ways, I mean, <laughs> obviously I, I was in in the same position as these guys at, at LucasArts um, when I um, finished with Revolution because um, Revolution had a, can- a project cancelled and, and they had to let everyone go, um, which was obviously, you know, sort of pretty uh, crappy for all of us. But at the same time, in the long term, I think it's been actually better for me because I've, I've had the chance to work on a much wider um, range of projects. Um, while still keeping in touch with the guys at Revolution and, and doing a bit of work here and there. I mean, I did some um, early story work on the um, recent um, Broken Sword game, the new one that he's 
we know later this year. Um, but, you know, sort of, I think that some people, it's difficult if you're, if you're freelance, if you're a very, you know, if you're not the kind of person who can exist outside of, of a work environment in, 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 a, in a professional capacity. It's difficult finding the work and moving from project to project without relocating and, and all the rest of it. So, you know, sort of having a fixed job in a, in a set company is, is quite preferable to, to most people. You know, they, they can settle down, they can, you know, sort of like, they, they know that they can turn in every day and, and, and they've got a, a you know, wage at the end of the month. But it is very difficult. It sounds like a damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Yeah, kind of. Um... I think that you've got to be prepared. If you go freelance, you've got to be prepared for the rough and the smooth. You know, oh. there are times when you will have, you know, no money coming in for the months because you know the work just dries up for all sorts of reasons. Um, back when the financial crisis hit a few years ago, um, publishers kind of like, you know, sort of like stepped back a bit and and were reluctant to to um, put the money into new projects for a short while and that meant that you know i had a you know problem finding projects at that particular time um but then you know sort of like you know you have another year where where you kind of get a bit flooded <laughs> and then it's all about management and and you know sort of how do i fit all these projects in um so you know sort of it's it is swings and roundabouts but it does take you a time to get established as well because when i was first you know, first decided to go free freelance rather than looking for another job as, as such. Um, it, it took me at least six months to, to, you know, start, you know, the process of, of finding reasonably regular work. So it's, it, it can be quite a nightmare, really. So, not a very comfortable moment for game development in any sphere, but uh, we move on to a more... Happy story. No, I tell a lie. <laughs> it's Marty's fun with EA and Microsoft. It so is. He actually has a blog on his own website, DLC, EA, Xbox, Xbox support, and the wrongs of digital distribution. So, Marty, you've got 10 minutes. Take it away. It's a sad story. Oh, no, we're going to go. <laughs> okay, we've done that one before. <laughs> oh, Jay, but still funny. Go on, come on, Marty. It's this is a story about uh, Tiger Woods twelve, and a story of broken uh, on support from both EA and uh, Microsoft. Although I think the support from EA has actually been pretty good. Um, I bought Tiger Woods twelve for a bargain price of about six pounds, which you know is is not a lot of money. And within the game, you have an online pass, and the online pass is a code that. Uh, you you tap in and and then allows you to play online on this game, but it didn't work. When I tapped this code in, it asked me for thirty six million pounds. Wow, that's a bargain. <laughs> Which even Tiger Woods, I think, would struggle to pay. Um, and I've been going through this whole process now of of talking to EA, talking to Microsoft, and nobody wants to take responsibility for the problem. I've gone so much through uh, the EA support calls that I've spent £25 on calls via Skype. 
<laughs> which is far more than the content's worth. But I am determined to get this to work. If you buy a game and within it is an online system and allowing you to play uh, the game online, it should work. What you pay for in the box should work. It should not have an expiry date. And if you really want to get into the, the ins and outs of it, you can read my blog and uh, you can even listen to the uh, audio dialogue because I recorded it for your pleasure. For our pleasure. <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll certainly try. But it is a tale of really worry and despair, isn't it? Because yeah. we are heading into digital distribution, the, both the good and the bad side of it. And the next Xbox is a, also a possible concern with rumours it could be always online and there may be a strong digital element to it as well. So... Other than poor Marty, who's had a very bad experience recently, although in fairness he's never been that, uh, shall we say, friendly with digital distribution. Stephen, how do you look at the future of digital distribution? Do you fear it or welcome it? Well, if whatever, well, a rumour that Microsoft are having that always on um, next Xbox, I don't think it would work properly. Would they, they Microsoft expect uh, people to have like a um, big broadband bandwidth so that they could be connected all the time? And I, I don't think that will work at all. Well, it's not so much bandwidth, is it? It's always online. It can use very, very little bandwidth, but we have to assume it has to be always on, always connected, otherwise you can't play your games. Now, there may be some... Well, they were saying there to make sure that if there is a dropout, that you can still play a game. But as we've seen with even recent titles like The Sims, it's not been all good. No, they were they were saying about that you'll need the um, an internet connection just to boot up the game, so that it recognises your game that you're playing, and not nobody else's. Basically, Microsoft are trying to put this in to stop people from um, downloading illegal copies. And what about you, Reese? What do you think to digital distribution? Generally, rather than the specific rumor to the next Xbox, um, surprisingly, I'm for it and would support it. Um, what? I, yeah, <laughs> there we go. I'll leave it to you two then. Go on then, Reese. Um, I don't know. It, it's the future. It's where we are eventually going. The only consideration for an argument here for me would be: Is it too soon? Is the uh, infant internet structure in the world not good enough yet? And I, I can accept that. But as a a system and a platform itself. I think I think it's the the right way to go. There's too many benefits for the developers. Um, what about the benefits for the consumers? Yeah, it's there are obviously downfalls to it, um, but it it depends where you come from. Your mileage may vary. Uh, I know for myself, my Xbox always has been always online, um, and I, I appreciate that they've pushed such an online infrastructure that means that I can always see what my friends are doing, or have all these statistic trackings, achievements, etc. Um, and it, it kind of feels like dragging people kicking and screaming into the future. But sometimes I want to take my console on holiday, and sometimes I want to take my console uh, around my mate's house, and they might not have internet. I then can't play it. It's true, they, they might not, but typically they would have, and more importantly, they should have. And hopefully... If big corporations try and push these future boundaries on us, ISPs can be kicked into gear to sorting out the network infrastructure. But it's, not a, it's not, not a it's not a case of um, 
of not wanting these things online. It's a, it's a case of being forced to, and that is what I have an objection with. Yeah, no, should, it, it is a problem. We should not be forced to have these things online. But the benefits you get from that, it means sure. that you can cut out retail altogether, which is but such I, a massive problem in the games industry. I also like having a physical copy of a game on my shelf. But it, it is, does that outweigh having the game at all? Because the rate we're going, the amount of developers are getting shut down because they just can't compete with but the... This is nothing to do with, <laughs> um, with having a physical product and more to do with the games that they're generating. Well, it'll benefit them massively. If you look at Steam, that obviously is already digital distributed, it's indie developers are flourishing there because they don't sure. have the publisher cost. In, indie, indie developers, I think, can flourish with digital distribution, but uh, they are putting these games out at a, cheap, at a cheaper price. I'm not going to want to pay forty, fifty pounds for a product that is a digital distributed game. No, I, I agree there definitely, but I'm hoping that. Microsoft do the right thing and understand that. They've always but, said so far that they won't sell for cheap, well they can't sell for cheap online because they can't upset retailers. But this is an excuse, it is an excuse. We haven't seen games getting cheaper on Steam because, we have. no we've not. They've, they've always been Only when they had a big sale. The, yeah, they exactly. are, I got Bioshock Infinite on release for £22 with five other games. How much did you pay for it for your consoles? Oh, well, I haven't bought it yet, but uh, that's a different matter. I, I could Google pretty much any game that was released this month and guarantee it, it's probably half price to what you well, pay PC, on PC, PC games have always been cheaper, though, than, than console games. Well, maybe we'll get there. What I'm saying is that um, digital distribution will not make console games cheaper. They will stay at the static price that they are now. It's just we will have less for our money. And it's important to differentiate... Digital distribution and always online connection are two yeah. very different yeah. things. Very, very you're using oh, yeah, yeah, digital definitely. distribution now if you buy anything from Xbox Live Arcade, for example. And, and that's licensed to that particular that. console rather than requiring an online connection. It, it's not like I'm a, a Luddite for digital distribution. I, I have somewhere in the region of 200-odd um, games on Xbox Live Arcade. I've got a lot of money tied to my console, and I would hate to lose that. And... I doubt that I'm going to be able to uh, move that across to my next box. I think that one of the problems, well, I, I saw a rant by somebody, and I can't remember who it was, but I didn't watch it all because it was a bit excitable. Um, but basically they were saying that if you've got an always-on um, console, then what happens when that console comes to the end of its life? It's effectively switched off. Yeah. Whereas... All your old consoles from the you know the PS One or the SNES or any of those, you can still play them. And I love my retro, as you all know. You know, and so so there'll come a point, you know, sort of like five ten years down the line, where they will switch off this this version of Xbox and not support it. So all those games you've invested in, you can no longer go back and play. Well, but but we can, Steve, because they will happily resell them on the next generation console after that. But that, that's a lot of assumption. There's nothing to say they won't do this. It's not like they're, they're transferring a lot of data with their infrastructure. It'll be transferring nothing, so Microsoft could easily leave it on for 50 years with no loss. Well, they could, but they turned Xbox okay. One off after 10 years. Yeah, but that didn't have anything that required it to be on. Well, Same could be said for Steam or en anything. You just, you've got to trust that they're not going to do that. And if they did, the backlash would be ridiculous. But the EA turn off servers, 
here and there everywhere. So and no, yeah, for uh, online despite com- complaints about that, it, uh, nothing happens. Yeah, they, well, they could yeah, leave those. Go. They could leave those going, couldn't they? I, I don't they buy don't. a single game off Origin because of that. Because EA, I don't trust with a penny of my money. But Microsoft, I, I would do, and I'd hope they would do this properly, just as Valve have. Valve is trusted galore by gamers because they keep doing things but right. Valve is not an always-on system either. No, it's not. You... It's near. It's almost there. So why would Microsoft go down that road of then having it always on and just annoying a, a, a whole lot of people? Because they're getting a massive, massive backlash against this. And let's also remember, although this is rumour, we don't know what the yeah. next Xbox will be no, like. absolutely it is rumoured, James, but they've had the opportunity to say that this is not going to happen. Ah, but Microsoft do not comment on rumour or speculation. But it's happening in they, some form. They, they, they the should... Go, on, go, go is, ahead, Steve. Right, but the thing is, though, if it is found to be true, right, this would give potential buyers serious food for thought. Basically, assuming that the next Xbox does require an always online connection, and then surely that would alienate those who play games offline or suffer with poor internet connection speeds. And also, it could potentially block the use of pre owned games. Well, that, that's another uh, thing that's. Uh people are going to get annoyed about the, the whole blockage of second-hand games and yeah this is th- there's two ways you can look at that there's the one hand you're saying you're taking money away from publishers and developers on the other hand people use uh, game second-hand games as a way of trading them in to buy new games mm. well let's try and look at this think- from another angle as well what could be the benefits of an always online system Lots of us play Xbox Live, and of course you have to be always online for that, and that's proved immensely successful. So what else could they bring to the table with that kind of infrastructure in place? Well, um, obviously it's going to be better for the developers because the retail costs are gone, so they can self-fund, hopefully through the likes of Kickstarter, or fund for cheaper without needing all these shelf space and marketing budgets. Um, better connectivity for players like we've seen with Xbox already and even better on Steam with uh, your friends always visible online proper stat tracking achievements and so forth Um, hopefully the sales and the discounts can be more like Steam and the excuse of we can't upset the retailers will finally be gone their cheating and hacking will be reduced ridiculously because a lot of that requires to be done offline to some extent especially piracy but we're uh, assuming here that piracy is, is an issue of, that impacts on sales and we're assuming i mean it, I, I i i would i would disagree with the um the the cheating thing because we still see cheating oh in, yeah you'll definitely still see it but it will reduce it and, and also the, the, the these the, the fact that publishers uh, uh, sorry indie 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 developers uh, don't have to have an online console, an online-only console that is always online and, and able to uh, develop their games for things like Xbox Live and PSN. No, yeah, it, definitely. It's, but it's, ha- not, it's not an advantage. What we're, what we're asking is, what are the advantages for consumers to have an always online console? And I don't think there is an advantage. The advantage... I don't, I don't think so either. I think that if you're, if you're having it always on... Why? It, why is it? Does it need to be always on? What about when people are at work and are, are asleep? 
why does it need to be on then? Why can't they just turn off the machine and forget about it? Maybe always on has been misunderstood and it just means it will download patches. Well, that's, that, that's an advantage. I would, I would go with that, James. I would say, and, but, but PS3 already does that. If you leave your PS3 switched on, you can actually uh, decide with, with a, a couple of hour periods what you would like your PS3 to do, such as sync up your game saves and download patches already. So, but it doesn't have to. I don't have to have it plugged in. And I don't have to have it plugged in to play games. I object to that notion that I have to have my machine plugged in to play games. Well, let's hope it is just a misunderstanding then. And it is more along the lines of what the PS3 and what the PS4 will do. Who knows? We will see soon enough because Microsoft's got to announce, hopefully before E3, because it's not expected that they'll announce it at E3. But on the same subject, Microsoft's creative director got into a little bit of bother after posting this tweet. Sorry, I don't get the drama around having an always-on console. Every device now is always on. That's the world we live in. And then they use the hashtag, which is probably the worst part of this, deal with it. (laughs) So Major Nelson... And Microsoft generally had to respond to this by saying, we apologise for the inappropriate comments made by an employee on Twitter yesterday. This person is not a spokesman for Microsoft and his personal views do not reflect the customer-centric approach we take to our products or how we would communicate directly with our loyal consumers. We are very sorry if this event offended anyone. However, we have not made any announcements about our product roadmap and have no further comment on this matter so that probably got them in a lot more hot water than they needed to and it stirred it all up again about always online and everything else there were some choicier quotes than that though james the uh, he he went on further than that to say um sometimes the electricity goes out and i would not purchase a vacuum cleaner the mobile phone reception in the area i live in is spotty and unreliable i will not buy a mobile phone these people should definitely get with the times and get the internet. It's awesome. Yeah, so they're, apo- they're apologising for his, um, you know, sort of very poor attitude rather than what he's actually said about. That, that's being it, exactly, on, Steve. That's on. it exactly. Yeah, so, his, so, his, his so, attitude towards consumers was just laughable and and disrespectful. I would even say. So, I think we'll move on from that. <laughs> now, it's that console name again, Marty. How do I pronounce it? Ooyah! Ooyah! The Ooyah console fires back at criticism. Why do they need to fire back at all? What's happened? What have we missed? It's not very good. Yes, the early yeah. reviews are <laughs> saying it's not quite up to scratch. It doesn't feel finished. Uh, if we just look at what The Verge has said... Since its inception, the Ouya team has said the console's software will constantly evolve and we don't doubt its ability to improve the experience for current owners. But by the same token, a lot of our specific criticisms, like the fractured UI and the difficulty of sideloading apps and games, won't be easy to fix, at least not in the next months. As we said in our review, it's going to need to work fast. It's it's a shame that it's getting bad press because I was hoping, I really was hoping that this little Ouya console was uh, 
going to be a viable alternative, perhaps not to the mainstream consumer, but but certainly to the geek consumer, uh, which I uh, belong to. And it would be something that we could we could home in on them. You could hack, you could and program, and you could program. expand. Exactly, yeah, exactly. And it's a shame that it's it's getting such bad reviews in the mainstream press. But I, I think I agree with Ouya in that um, it's early days. With more developers, more software needs to go on that system to, to make it a viable platform. But I think it will end up being a uh, just this kind of niche product and a, a, with, with this this big backing from a, a small amount of people. And is anybody wow. else interested in buying <laughs> this platform? I've never even heard of it. You've never <laughs> heard of Ooyah? Ooyah? You didn't read the show notes then. <laughs> <laughs> and that just proves he hasn't listened to the previous podcast either. For shame. <laughs> It's so, it's it's a brilliant i the the whole idea of Ouyar is to get everybody sharing content. It's it's kind of like the, the the free software movement, and I think it's a really really good idea. But it needs people to be on board with it. I've always been against it in the exact opposite direction. It Go on, Reese. Um, I don't know. I can just never understand the the purpose of the console. I can understand what what the purpose of the console you're describing, Marty, but it's never been described that way from what I've seen. Instead, it just seems like a, a gimmicky Android device, which we've already got a lot of, in which you can play games you wouldn't want to play with a joypad on your telly. I, I certainly agree that there's plenty of Android uh, devices out there, but the, it's it's the um, the whole ethos of of Ouyah, that is uh, what interests me. Is there room there to self-develop and self-code onto this thing? Because I thought it was just a full-on storefront, kind of like Steam in a box. Well, the the whole idea is is whoever produces games for the console shares that game. It, <laughs> I think that the whole concept is a good one. Whether it'll actually work is perhaps another matter. That, yeah. that sharing is is good, but where is the money coming from from doing that? I don't know. So we can only hope things improve over time with software updates. And really, it's you're not appealing to the the Wii U crowd, the Xbox crowd, or the PS3, four crowd. You're appealing to developers and those curious about hacking and modding and all the rest. Yeah, of them. Uh, and I think it'll end up being this this kind of niche product. I never really thought that it would ever, ever uh, hack at uh, Microsoft or um, Sony's heels, but it, it, I think it's something that, that may be in the background there that people can enjoy and people will, will support. I, I think that there will be support for this console, but I think it will be isn't a it, niche product. Isn't it kind of a console equivalent of, of the Raspberry Pi? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's somewhere between the Raspberry Pi and an Xbox, isn't it? It's sitting yeah. in the middle. Yeah, and I love my Pi. I love my Raspberry Pi. You love your Raspberry Pi. It's such a brilliant project, project that is. It, trying to get people in, involved in coding and trying to get people involved in IT. Yeah. I, mm. I, I don't think that's actually the um, the, the intent of you, are, but Yeah. Uh, no, I think the Raspberry Pi is, is brilliant. That that's exactly what we need more of. It just seems like the UU has more of an attempt to monetize and 
throw microtransactions all over Android games for TV users. Yes, because but, the games are right. all have to be free, but then it's microtransactions after the fact, isn't it? Yeah. Ugh. Basically, as soon as they announced Grand Theft Auto, um, when they first announced this thing and made claims of games they would never get, it was clear that they weren't quite going to deliver. Well, let's give it time. I mean, it's still early days. and Yeah, definitely. So, who played DuckTales on the NES? Yep. Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> so, Reese, are you excited about Capcom working on a remastered version for Xbox, PC, and other platforms? Nope. Moving on, then. <laughs> well, let's expand that. Why not? Well, I don't know. We've just had a lot of these HD remakes lately that just don't capture what was brilliant back in the day. Uh, that I've, I've just given up hope now. I'd rather just have the original re-released without a massive rework, something like uh, Cave Story Plus or the Monkey Island games did it brilliantly, or even just the, the recent Age of Empires HD re-release. It just, just looks too reworked uh, for me. Mm. i tell you what I did love about it, though. I'd buy the game just because of the trailer. It had the DuckTales theme from Thank the cartoon you. in it. That, that was brilliant. And the you could sing black. along. Yep. <laughs> 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 Go on then, James. No. <laughs> no. This is Console Monster Podcast, not karaoke, anonymous. Well, I've got the audio from earlier on. I might put it online. Marvellous. Brilliant. You do that. You've recorded other calls. Why not? <laughs> so, Sega Europe admits to misleading Colonel Marines trailers. So what's all this about, Marty? Oh, this is this is about um, stuff that was put out for uh, the new Aliens game that has been absolutely slated in the press. And the fact is that the trailers looked fantastic and everybody thought they were going to get an Aliens games that they could love and it turned out that it didn't look anything like uh, the trailers that they put out and they've now apologised and said look that that was just a, a thing that we're going to try and aim towards but it didn't happen but I mean having said that the game itself is not that bad it, it, I don't think it really deserves the, the ones and twos and threes that it's getting is it's an average game, but it isn't diabolical. It's because it's aliens, you expect better. Yeah, and, but it's got the, the whole nice story. The story to it is actually quite quite good. It's, it's quite well written. I think uh, Steve would be quite proud of that. But um, it's... Uh, it's just it just doesn't work as as an as a shooter, and the AI is a little bit stupid. But from a story point of view, it's very good. So, according to GamesIndustry.biz, Sega Europe has admitted to the Advertising Standards Authority that its trailers for Aliens Colonel Marines were misleading. Sega's position was revealed by a Reddit user with the pseudonym Subpar Dave, who had submitted a complaint to the ASA due to the absurd differences between the footage used to advertise the game and the quality of the finished product. So exactly as you said, Marty. So it's not the first time we've seen trailers and things where it's not actual in-game footage and most of them do state this at the bottom of the screen, maybe in a small font, but it is there, but they forgot. 
EA uh, E three is is full of this stuff. So um, watch out for that in the next two months. And Sony's been guilty of that in so many E three conferences. It's uh, hard to count. It's usually with, like you said, trailers though, where you expect that it looks absolutely nothing like the game. But I was watching a few earlier, and it, it, they have full blown thirty minute gameplay trailers where it's all in game, um, not for TV, not for sale. And then they compare them to release footage that is just ridiculously different. It, I don't understand how they can have had such a pretty game and somehow ruined it. I'd, I'd like to know the story behind it, what, what's gone on there. Yeah, me too. Well, yeah. Steve will tell you it's not about the graphics. It is all about the story. <laughs> Weren't you, Steve? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, if a game is, is designed to be... Um, pretty, then it should be pretty. Yeah, um, it's, it's not just about the but graphics. It's, it, it's about how you define pretty, though, isn't it? I mean, I still think that um, Beneath Steel Sky looks looks great. Yeah. Even though it's very low resolution. Agree. Definitely would agree. Um, and, and the artists who work, worked on that did a fantastic job. Um, and I mean, what you were talking about remakes earlier, um, and people have asked me, you know, about you know, sort of a remake of, of Steel Sky, and I hope that Revolution don't do it, because I think it's exactly right the way it is. So, although it is about the graphics in, in many ways, it's about how you define those graphics. And graphics can be pretty. They don't need to be high resolution or, or um, you know, sort of like millions of polygons on screen and all the rest of it. It's about how you present them, how you, you create the, the colour balances, how you create the um, use of textures and things like this, you know. Sort of, if you promise a good-looking game, it should look. It should look good, even if, even if the actual modelling quality of the characters and stuff, you know, isn't maybe quite as as as, as good as advertised. It could still. It should still look good. That's that's a very interesting point, actually, uh, Steve. Uh, it doesn't. It's a stylization issue rather than the actual out-and-out uh, polygon count. Mm. Well, my favourite game of all time is actually a point-and-click adventure, and it's Simon the Sorcerer, and it was probably resolution 320 by 240, which one we think today of 720p for the Xbox is, was, is 1280 by 720. So it's it, compared to today's standards, it's very low resolution, even lower than Broken Sword 1 was, half the resolution of that. Yet mm. it still looked gorgeous. There were animations and things and colours that just made it stand out. It's all about the style, isn't it? Not just how many polygons you can push. Well, mm. it's, not, it's not even about style. It's, it's about how you feel playing the game. I mean, I, I can beat you, James. One of my favourite games is on the Spectrum, which is a, uh, a game called Chaos Battle of the Wizards, which is a Julian Gollop game, the guy who invented uh, XCOM and it's a strategy game where you have wizards battling now on a playing field and I still play it today, I have it on my phone as an emulation and I play it today it is fantastic and if you haven't ever played it I would absolutely say go and check it out Chaos Battle of the Wizards and can I just say Marty, you will never beat me you can only rival me <laughs> and well I would really 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 hope that um, you because Ju uh, Julian is now working on a uh, a new version of this game, and uh, we will battle it out on the battlefield, James. That, and we don't really want to see any vision, and I'm sure the podcast listeners don't, of you beating me. 
with whips or anything like that. I just don't know what goes around in your head, Marty. So yeah, we'll you probably don't, and, and neither would the listeners. No, exactly. So, the sun reckons, and the sun is such a reliable source for all these things, that they reckon the PS4 will be released in October. Can we believe that in any stretch? Sure, it's going to be November, December. I, I don't, don't know why we'd even consider anything they say to be true. Obviously, they've, they've not got any of the sources compared to other outlets. Um, it's probably just an attempt to grab headlines. You mean insert celebrity has not had a breast enhancement this week? <laughs> <laughs> Let's just go with no. He's had it enhanced with the PS4. Ah. So you're saying then, uh, Reese, that you don't think that the console will be released in October? Um, I would be guessing about as much as the sun. When do you think they will? Hopefully around November, December, so they can get that massive sales spike you see around the Christmas period. Um, but we'll see. Has I anything so. been confirmed from Sony that, in the UK at least, it will be released this year? We won't have to wait just after Christmas. No. Rumours say just after Christmas. Yeah, in, in fact, yeah, it, this year I don't think we will... I think it would be a shame, but... Uh, Rumour has it that we won't see it in the UK this year. And this is what I hate about rumours, because I've read rumours where it was going to release just before Christmas. Well, I, I, I'd love, love the fact that PS4 would be in the UK in October. I, I, I would go and buy one. I would queue up even, maybe, to uh, to get one. But, um, but Marty, I don't think that doesn't happen. mean anything. You brought a Wii U. I didn't buy <laughs> You'd buy <laughs> anything. Oh. <laughs> Look, look, there's nothing wrong Sorry, with the Wii, Wii U. <laughs> the, the Wii U is a fantastic little console. It's just, it's been, it's been, no, nobody is wants to do anything with it. I don't understand why. Including you. Yeah. How many times have you played it since Christmas, Marty? Come on. I, I've turned my Wii U on once since Christmas. Sorry. There you go. It's That's not a good, feeling good of love. I, 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 I'm sorry, everybody, but... Um, there's just no games there for it. We need more games for the Wii U. And un- unless more games appear on the platform, it is not going to sell. Um, well, EA has actually spoken about DRM in a negative light. It's, it's a real shocker, I think. So EA have said, DRM is a dead-end strategy was never discussed in SimCity meetings. So, while we all pick ourselves up off the floor, why have they suddenly come out and said this? And would Microsoft dare do something along those lines if EA wasn't in any way supporting it? I believe we should just disregard anything EA say at this point. <laughs> <laughs> the Were amount of lies. Worst company on something recently. They they've won the uh, the worst company in the USA two thousand and two, and they're on track to win it this year as well. Wow, I'd love to see the trophy for that. That's a big. Oh, I won't even say what it is. No, we can't. <laughs> no, not on a family friendly podcast. Exactly. It's a shame because obviously SimCity is is meant to be a great game. I've not played it myself, and the developers are, are renowned as being a great studio. So it's just a shame that these. Stupid decisions get put in place. Obviously, can't be thoroughly tested with the demand a game like that is going to, to meet. And even worse, the customer support handling is just horrendous. 
This is where Marty jumps in and reminds us of the DLC problem. Exactly. Well, I was just about to say, look, this this is the whole concept of online only. It just doesn't work. So SimCity, as we know, has had a lot of problems with server capacities and whatnot. And this is what EA Labels President Frank... Oh, gosh, this is going to be fun to pronounce. Gibber... I do apologise, Mr. Gibber, or whatever your pronunciation is. But this is what he said anyway. This is what we care about. DRM is a failed dead-end strategy. It's not a viable strategy for the gaming business. So what we've tried to do creatively is build an online service in the SimCity universe, and that's what we sought to achieve. He then goes on to say, For the folks who have conspiracy theories about evil suits at EA forcing DRM down the throats of Maxis, that's not the case at all. That's not the reality. I was involved in all the meetings. DRM was never even brought up once. I, and if that's the case, why on earth is it in there? Then, exactly. I, this, I, I have to say it. <laughs> there is so much the stuff that is coming. Oh, Marty! I had <laughs> look. It, it, it's plain and simple. It is BS. The the stuff that is coming out from EA over the whole SimCity thing it is just a whole lot of nonsense. And they they lied about the reason that uh, that the game needs to be always online. They said that that the servers were crunching the numbers that the game was producing, which even if you even thought about that as a sensible person, it's complete nonsense. If you have an i5 and an i7 processor in your machine, how many processors do the servers need to do that kind of data crunching in the cloud? It's just nonsense. And and they they try to, to uh, put this across as, as needing to be online because of, of that whole thing. It doesn't crunch numbers. It doesn't do anything. We've already seen that people have hacked the game to play offline. So anything that EA say say now is just a lie. And this is the opinion of Marty Greenwell. (laughs) It is to Marty Greenwell. PO box. But it's it's, it's (laughs) absolutely true, and it can be. And it can you can you can go and read this stuff for yourself. It's very true. It is remarkable that the hacker shown the code and it is simply a single line of code that enables or disables the always online aspect that they claimed was so integral and would take six months to remove. So let's finish on a lovely happy note and I'm serious this time. Mr. Ince, what can you tell us about Broken Sword 5? Um, not a lot, actually. Um... And that's it for this podcast, everybody. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. And to find out more information regarding these news items and to read our collection of reviews, previews, and much more, visit consolemonster.com. So thanks to our guests, Marty Greenwell. Bye-bye, folks. Stephen Bork. Bye-bye. Reese Warinder. Farewell. Who's the kryptonite to Marty. Good man. <laughs> and Steve Ince. Bye, everyone. Take care, everyone. And there we go. Good one, folks. <laughs> I was just about to launch into something. Then. No, you weren't. Don't tease. <laughs> oh, no, I've, I've actually not um, not been involved for a, a while now. I mean, I did some early story work. I was doing some design work. There. Well, what can you tell us publicly, Steve? Come on, this is your chance. I'm still recording. 
For no, those who have um, stuck around, turn the recording off, bit, and then we can get the inside thing. Can't we? No, yeah, come all, on. all I know, all I know is that um, this game is coming out this fall. All I've been hearing. Well, it's supposed to be. I mean, you know, sort of. Um, I don't, I don't see any reason for it not. I mean, I spent quite a bit of time on it already. Um, when I was involved, it was like the beginning of last year. Um, on the story and design work, and it was progressing quite well. And then I had to kind of come off because I, I kind of lined up other projects. It, it had um, run on a little, uh, shall we say. But I think that that, that was it. Run on because um, there's a lot of fine tuning going on with the story, um, settings, and stuff like this. I mean, it's difficult to do a broken sword game um, to try and capture the the essence of what a broken sword game is, and yet still try not to repeat yourself too much, and, and mm. so it's kind of it, it's it's a fine balance really. And I think that when I left it, the, the story was strong, the characters were great, um, the plot was was very very um, good, you know, sort of, in, and and it felt like a you know sort of very much return to its roots. Um, so how how much involvement have you actually had in that project then, Steve? Well, um, there were three of us working on the story. There's myself, Charles, and a guy called Neil Richard. And we worked on the story between us. And it was, it was pretty solid. And you know, sort of like there's... Um, oh, God, I can't to think how many pages we wrote. But it, it was quite a lot of, of work. And, you know, sort of like the, there was an awful lot of design. I, I did some, some high-level design work, um, which obviously then gets, you know, like adjusted and, and a lot more detail mm-hmm. for those non-developers and what's high level design work um well when when you're for, for an adventure game it's when you're thinking about you know kind of like a, a section of the game you might go into well let's take let's take when you go to ireland in, in the first broken sword game you know it's, you 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 arrive there um, and you I need didn't, to look- didn't didn't like going to Ireland and that game. Steve. I loved Ireland. So carry on, Steve. We'll ignore Martin for this. I, I didn't. It's, it's, I didn't like fun. it for one particular reason, and this is the reason that the the, 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 the puzzle with the goat was just stupid. Yeah. Oh, it was the goat. People <laughs> loved the goat. They're bringing well, the goat back, so you better like it. It was. Um, Sorry, Steve. Go, carry on. No, it's okay. But but when you when you take a section like Ireland. You know, it's a standalone section in 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 that you know, sort of like you go there, you do everything you, you need to do, and then you you leave and never go back there. So so um, so when you approach it at a higher level, you think, oh well, you know, sort of like George arrives, he talks to this character, he talks to that character, he he, he needs to kind of like get his way. You know, sort of find his way into the cellar. He needs to kind of get into the castle and things like. So you're kind of thinking, you know, sort of about the puzzles at a very high level, not the fine details of, you know, sort of like finding the piece of wire to to mend the fuse or anything like that. You're you're, you're thinking about the puzzles at a very high level. Well, oh, we need a puzzle here for to stop him going into the cellar. We need to a puzzle to, you know, sort of how is he going to climb over the wall and things like this. Um. So, so that's that's what I mean by high level. It's not the little details of of kind of working out the logic. If holding wire, then you know, kind of kind of thing. That's the low level um, design. <laughs> I see. Sounds quite complicated and intense. 
especially when stories can diverge. Have they picked up this item? The response might be different if they haven't. Yeah. So the contingency planning, isn't it, as well? Yeah, there's yeah. so many branches. This is what makes doing the, the stories for that type of game really difficult, because you, you have to branch it out and, and understand yeah, I mean, I mean, what the player's going to do. Something like Broken Sword 1, I mean, in, in many respects, that's probably the most complex of them, or of, the, of the release games, anyway, because you had, you were always returning to Paris, and there were things that you could do in different orders, like you could go to Spain before you went to Syria and things like this. Mm. Um, and, you know, sort of, you know, you had to work out where you needed to go in Paris, you know, go off to the church, and go off to the, um, the, the, the sewers and things like this. Um, so there's an awful lot to do. <laughs> you go, um, you know, sort of like a very high level, and then you, you sort of like work in a bit more detail and think, you know, sort of like how how will we kind of like map this out into sections and then you kind of break those sections down into, into high-level design and things like that. So, so each iteration, you kind of like working in more detail yeah. and that's how you keep track of the logic, really. It's, 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 if you can establish the, log, the, the main logic at a very high level, then when you put the detail in, that logic will still be sound. The, 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 it's, it's just trying to to keep track of the whole the whole thing because if you start at the root and then you 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 see the branches that come off of this tree it's just it just gets more and more and more it's it's like the whole chessboard thing like um if you have one grain of sand on the first checkboard and then double it and then double it and then double it and then double it all these branches just makes things more and more mm. difficult to to uh, uh, to contain. Uh, the, the trick is not to have the branches, just to give the appearance of branches. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. Well, well, well no, that's, yeah, that's 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 true. Explain I mean, that then, 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 Steve. That sounds like a trick and a half. That does. Now, there's a, there's an element of branching, but you don't have an infinite amount of branching. You're not giving the player, you know, a choice at every step. You know, sort of a game like Broken Sword, although you have some choice about about doing things in different orders and stuff like but, that. But that game really does feel like you do have a lot of choices. But ultimately, we bring the game back to the, you know, sort of a single ending. So, so you, make, you may make choices about how you work your way through that, that story, but ultimately, all the different um, elements that you touch have to be touched, you know, in order to get to the end. So just because you choose a different different order to play them doesn't mean that you know sort of it's necessarily a branching choice. Yeah. It's 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 more So simplistically then, if you don't have the key, there's no way you're going through the door. Well yes. But it may be that that there are two, it could be that there are two keys. And it could be that, you know, if you go to see the old man, he's got a key. And if you go to see um, the, the the beautiful lady, you know, sort of she may have a key, and it's about it's maybe the gameplay about you those. So, but also it may be that both of those have two halves of the key. So you can go see the old man and then go, go see the, the the young lady, or you could do it the other way around. But you have to touch both uh, um, things if you like in order to to progress, and that's that's really how. You give the illusion of choice. It's not about. So, 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 it's not about so, you making gameplay choice. You know, sort of like 
or, or story choices as such. It's about choosing to do one thing instead of another. So, how do you how do you map this stuff out for yourself? Then, do you, do you have a whiteboard that that like a a, a flow of, of ideas, a flow chart or anything? Yeah, like a flow that. chart. Yeah, the yeah. flow charts are, are, are quite valuable. I mean, you you might have um, an overall flow chart, so you have a flow of how how the how the various locations or sections um, within a game um, flow from one to another. And, and whether they can flow back, and whether the, you can do things in different orders. So you might have this kind of high-level map. Then within a section, um, you might have another flow chart because it might be the flow of how you pick up objects, how you examine things, how you put together clues, how you put together inventory items and stuff like this in, in order to solve <coughs> um, the puzzles within that section. So, so flow charts are incredibly valuable. Um, but you also need to have a very um, clear image of it as well. You, you do need to hold an awful lot in your head. I mean, it has to be written down because obviously you don't want to forget or lose anything. But you still need to hold this picture of how the shape of the game needs to be. But I think you need to do that um, in a lot of in a lot of things. I mean, if you're writing a book or you're you're, you're writing a screenplay or what have you. You, ni- you need to have a vision of how how that story um, is structured. You need to have a vision of how you you, you see the, the the film that's going to come from your screenplay. Yeah. So so there is an awful lot that you need to kind of like hold in your head, and that kind of like enables you to kind of like look at the finer detail and say, well, actually, this isn't working because it contradicts with. Um, X, Y, and Z in in that section. You know. So, so it's and how on earth do you collaborate with other writers when you're doing something as complicated as this? Because uh, obviously, what they're writing is going to intermingle with your sections. How do you know to yeah uh, of all that? And it also has to to, to work with the engines that uh, the developers are producing. You've got to have um, lots of meetings. And you've got to be reading each other's stuff. Um, you can't. You can't write a section of a game, you know, the dialogue and stuff like that, in, in isolation. You need to know, you know, sort of like. Well, you need to know the characters for a start. You need to know that you're being, you know, you're writing them consistently. Um, and you need to know that. Oh well, in this section, he finds the, you know. The, the golden orb of, of you know Skeletor, if you like, <laughs> um, and and so in the next section they they, they have oh yeah they, the main character has this golden orb you know it's it's about knowledge it's about passing things forward but but sometimes key objects like that you define at a higher level before you're actually writing the details and certainly before you're writing things like the dialogue or um, you know sort of interactive. So, so where do you get your inspiration from then, Steve? <laughs> Everywhere, you know. So you look around and you, you sort of um, you see things um, in the world. You might hear a, a snippet of conversation on a bus, um, things like this. Um, sometimes it's just odd things. I mean, sometimes I can be reading a book 
I, I'm, I'm really interested ju- just to see where, where you'd get that inspiration because I mean, I'm, I'm kind of the same with my photography that um, I, I, I'm out and about and then a, a certain something will make me think this will make a great photograph and I, I, I assume that that's the kind of same thing that you, you have with your writing. Sometimes, sometimes you can do it directly. Other times it's about you know, the tangential you know, if you see, um, once I was walking down the street and I saw this poor, battered old cat with only one eye, and suddenly, you know, I was off on a tangent. I was thinking, oh, well, that make a great cartoon character. And suddenly, you know, and and so you just you just kind of like you just fire off in in, in that kind of way, and suddenly. Uh, sometimes I just get an idea for character, um, and then if the character's strong enough, everything else spins off that, mm. you know. And it, and it's kind of like, okay, this character is, you know, sort of um, a supernatural power, so something like this. They can see ghosts, or they can um, they can levitate, or something like this. And you think, well, you know, how do I create a story around that? And the key to a story is, you know, sort of like, what are they? What is? Well, is there? they want to do, what they need to do, and how are they going to achieve it, and what are the obstacles, and, and stuff like this. So, you know, it's it's a series of things that, that just come together. Yeah. And there was silence. I think we're yeah. sapped to dry, Steve. <laughs> well, thank you for that little bit extra. Is it okay if we keep that in? Yeah, sure. Good man. Well, thank you, those who stuck around for the bit at the end, and we'll see you on the next MonsterCast, number 20. Yeah, cheers, guys. Cheers. Thanks a lot. All right.